If you notice, last week we um, talked about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, which is called the city of David, right? So today we're going to talk a lot more about David. Uh, if you've maybe read through the whole Old Testament and the New, uh, David comes up quite a bit. Uh, his name is mentioned all over the place. Uh, starting from the book of Ruth and through the historical books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, he's mentioned. Uh, the major and some of the minor prophets talk about him, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and even some of the small prophets. Uh, David, not only, he, he not only wrote some of the Psalms, but he's also mentioned in multiple Psalms that he didn't even write. Uh, he's mentioned in the introduction to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Furthermore, David is also mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Paul writes about David multiple times in his letters. He's mentioned in the book of Acts, the book of Hebrews, and even the book of Revelation. So there's a Davidic theme. David is just, he just all over the place. Uh, perhaps you even realize uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So it even talks about him there in the book of Matthew. In the first chapter, again, after that, Matthew writes that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was, quote, son of David. And then in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 11, it says that he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, multiple times. Why is David so important? You ever think about that? Why do we talk about David all the time? In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, when uh, the angel speaks to... Uh, he speaks of this. In, verse chap in chapter 1, verse 32, the angel says this. He, the Messiah, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So again, even the angels speak of David. And in that final verse, Luke 1, 32, I think that's, that would be the key verse of why David is mentioned all the time, why he's spoken of. Is Jesus is going to get the throne of his father, David, the reign, the throne, the kingship of David. So that's why Jesus came into the world was to be throned, enthroned, the king of the world, the son of David, the throne of his father, David. So if you wanted a one sentence summary of this sermon and what the point of this is, the throne belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the point. And I want you guys to see this in 2 Samuel. This is where this whole idea, this whole focus on David comes from. This is where it's all talked about. This is kind of where it begins. If what all this has to do with David, why is he mentioned? This is, this is the answer. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Before we get there, I want to give you just a brief, a really brief uh, introduction of David. I, I know you know, but it's good to get a little bit, just a little bit of refreshing of who David is and what's going on. So the people of Israel have grown tired of having the best king in the world, God. They get tired of that, because we never do that either. <laughs> and they want to be like all the other nations. They want, you know, we want some guy with a sword. And we want a guy who can command chariots. That's what we want. So they get angry, and they want a king. They want a man. And Samuel says, okay, according to the word of the Lord, you can have a king. And if you remember who that king was, it was the first human king in Israel's history, that is King Saul. And this is not a good thing, right? If you know much about Saul, he's not a very good king. That, that's the point. The Lord says, you want a king? Take him. You want Saul? 
He's all here. So really, Saul is an act of judgment. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we learn a ton about Saul and even going on. He is foolish. He's a coward. He sins against the Lord multiple times. And in 1 Samuel 15, it says that the Lord rejects Saul. So Saul is this king who sins repeatedly. The Lord says, you know what? Enough. Saul turns away. The Lord says, I'm rejecting you as well. And then right after in 1 Samuel 16, the very next chapter, the Lord says he's going to appoint a new king, a man after his own heart. He's the youngest of the sons of Jesse. He's a shepherd of the sheep, and you know his name is David. He's a lowly shepherd who will rule over the people of Israel. And then as you probably know much about David, David goes on, and Saul is still alive during much of David's life. He faces torments and attacks of Saul. Saul tries to kill David multiple times, and he fails. In the end, uh, Saul and his sons are killed in battle. Uh, David is the hero, as you probably remember. They sing songs of David. David slays the giant Goliath. He fights for his people. He honors the Lord. He's submissive to the king's authority, even though he wasn't king. He's a faithful friend, a brave warrior, and really, he's the hero of Israel. Everyone loves David for a good reason. But David will be anointed the king. He's been placed, and by God's favor, God chose him to be king. And amazingly, the Lord fights for David. If you remember, he protects David, he upholds David, he submits enemies to David. I mean, the Lord just, he really is for David. And then here comes 2 Samuel. Very briefly, David is the king of Judah, so he's the king of most of Israel. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, all of Israel says, you know what, David, we know who you are. We want a king, and we want you to be him. So they all submit after Saul has gone. All the people of Israel, says chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, that all the people are under David's rule. David's built a great house. In Zion, which is later called the city of David, as named by David, <laughs> and he fortifies his dwellings there. So David was a great warrior, a good king, and out of his free grace, God has chosen David to be king. And now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has a great house, a huge house, a beautiful dwelling place. Here comes verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what David says. This is what happens. Now, when David lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So now again, David is at the peak of his reign. This is before uh, his fall with Bathsheba. This is before really his whole kingdom just explodes from the inside. It implodes. This is before all that. David lives in a house with no problems from any enemies. Uh, there were constant threats from surrounding nations, particularly the Philistines, you probably know. David literally had them all subdued. Now, more correctly, the Lord, if you, if you look, had given him rest. So God has conquered. He has routed David's enemies. And David is now at rest. Think of being a king with all these military nations, and all of a sudden you get to do what? All right, everyone's, their butt's been kicked. We win. It, it's rest. The Lord gave him rest. Just from this verse alone, you can see God's power over the nations, and that God has continually, this is really important to the whole sermon, God has been faithful to his people Israel. Have they been faithful to God? No. We don't want you. We want a real king. And yet the Lord is continually being faithful to his covenant people, Israel. It says the Lord has given them rest. God defeats David's enemies. David is a true king, better than Saul, but they still want someone to lead and defend them. That's what David's doing. Of course, 
the people of Israel will reap the benefits of David's rule. So David is a great warrior. If you know much about David's life, he's astounding. I mean, he's amazing. And the people reap the benefits because David does well, the people live well. Like verses 2 and 3, David speaks to the prophet Nathan. He says, Nathan, I dwell in this really great mansion, and yet God dwells in some little camper. He's in a tent. Why is he in a tent? That doesn't, that doesn't feel right. So David resides in this beautiful house, and he thinks about the ark of the Lord. Maybe you know what the ark of the Lord is. Uh, we, we probably call it the ark of the covenant. Same thing. It was commanded by Moses, constructed out of wood, overlaid with gold. And the point of the ark was this. This is where God's presence dwelled, right? Now, God wasn't restricted to, okay, if there's no, if there's no t- ark, I can't go anywhere. This is where God said, if you want to meet with me in, in a relational way, you're going to meet me at the ark, and I'm going to come dwell with my people. Just think about that. God's going to say, there's one place where we're going to meet, and it's going to be here. Um, Exodus 25 says this about the ark there, so the ark. I will meet with you on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you. So God's dwelling place is a tent. You could call it the tabernacle. Same thing. This is the mobile version before the temple's born. So before there's a temple being made, there's a one you can hook on the back of your truck and tow it around. Okay, this is the tabernacle. This is the tent. And in verse three, Nathan says, "Yeah, go for it. Make one. That's great." So he just off the cuff, sure. Look at verses four through seven. This is where it gets kind of interesting. The word of the Lord that same night comes to Nathan and says, "Okay, this is not this is not how it's going to happen. I didn't tell you to say that, but now I'm telling you what to do." So Nathan didn't sin; he just spoke from himself. Now the Lord speaks to Nathan. And says this, that the house that he lives in, the tabernacle, if I really needed a house, I would have told you. I think it's kind of funny the Lord says this. So look at what he says. Verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel. So what the Lord is saying is, wait, Dave wants to build me a place to stay? If I wanted a house, I would just ask for one. The Lord says to David. So if you know... Capital letters, L-O-R-D, where it says the Lord, is the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. Um, it's four letters in Hebrew. It's yod Hey wow Hey is how you, those the names of the letters. Um, if you even, uh, I, so it's kind of interesting. Sometimes if you type in on, on a computer, you know, it'll capitalize names. If you type in like Jack, it'll, it'll capitalize Jack or Bill. Uh, the name for the Lord here, the, the word that we've called, is called the Tetragrammaton. So it's four letters, Tetra four. It actually capitalizes itself. Kind of interesting that the computer recognizes what this is. But this is, this is the name for the Lord. This is God's covenant name. In Exodus chapter 3, you probably know this story. Moses says, well, who, who should I tell the people sent me? What should I say? And what does the Lord say? I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you, right? What does I am mean? Well, it means that he's the self-existent one. He, he just is. There is no, I'm going to, I'm trying I am, I exist, I am who I am. He is the self-existent, self-sustaining one. All other things, all things that we see, everything else is a creature, it is finite. We people are finite, we are small, we are created. The Lord is eternal, he is timeless, self-existent, self-sufficient, all, I mean, just all the omnis, right? He doesn't need anything. This is why it's so shocking. And David's like, hey, Lord, I'll build you a house. And the Lord says, Tell him the Lord, tell him Yahweh, the self-existent one tells him. Acts 17, Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, Lord's making it very clear that I own everything. He says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? That means everything. He holds the universe in the span of his hand. First Kings chapter 8 says, The heaven and highest heaven cannot contain the Lord. Isaiah 66 says, The earth is his footstool. Can you build a temple for that God to reside in? No, that's the point. The Lord doesn't need you to build anything. He owns everything, right? That's the point. Something that I learned in seminary, probably one of my favorite classes I had. I had to write like a 15-page paper, so it was quite the trek. But one of the, my favorite things I learned was just a really calm rebuke to all students that God is not just a bigger version of us, right? We always say, well, God's just like us. He has nothing like me. He's not like Kale. I'm really glad that he's not. He's not like people. He's not just a really big, like Marvel superhero, Superman kind of person who's just really strong and big. He's the creator I mean, he's nothing like us. When we read the words in Isaiah 6 that God is holy, 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 it doesn't just mean that he's free from sin, though that's true. It means that he's separate. He's nothing like everything else. So there's two categories in the world. There's God. There's everything else. He's nothing like it. That's what he's like. He's, there's nothing like it. We can't compare him to anything. That's why the commands of idolatry are so bad. It's, oh, God looks like this. No, he doesn't. God is nothing like us. He spoke the world into existence. He's not just a bigger version. He's the creator. I'm the creature. And look at what God calls David. He calls him his servant. Now, the Bible always translates the word servant for a reason because we, the real word actually means slave. We have Bibles in America. We, we hear slave. We think of the wrong kind of slave. This is to remind David that I'm the master. You're the slave. If I wanted something, I would tell you because I'm the master. I'm the master of everything. I have no needs. So this is, not a, this is not a rebuke and anger. This is David. Remember who I am. Remember who you are. I'm the creator. I don't dwell anywhere. I dwell and I inhibit all things, right? That's the point. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now look at verses 8 through 11. This is where the Lord unravels what he's going to do. Now, there are four remarks I want to give you about these four verses. In verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, God repeatedly states things like this. I have, or I will, or I did. Just to remind us that David is the recipient, right? Who gives and does all things? Well, Yahweh does, the Lord, right? All of David's victories, it's not David. All of his conquests, it's not David. All of, where he is as king, it's not David. Where Israel is, it's not because of Israel, right? One of the most humbling texts in all the Bible is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And it says that the Lord did not choose Israel because they were great. Not because you're great or big or intelligent or Jewish, right? There's nothing intrinsically about you. It says it's because the Lord loves you. Why did he choose Israel? Because he chose to love them. They didn't earn anything. They didn't perform well. They weren't obedient. And the Lord said, oh, great. David, the Lord's reminding David, I am in charge. I do all things. 
We are the benefit, the beneficiary. We receive all from God. God is the giver. We are the receiver. And this is God reminding David, remember, I give you everything. I've done all this to your people. I am the king. You are the beneficiary, right? And also David was chosen by the Lord out of his good pleasure. Second, the Lord says he will plant his people and make them dwell secure. So God's people, Israel, he promises them they will have security and safety. Do you guys like having locked doors at night? It's a nice thing to have locked doors, alarm systems, um, guns. It's nice having things to keep you secure, right? The Lord's saying, you know who will keep you secure? It will be me. You don't need any, I mean, yes, you need a military force because this is how God does it. His point is, Israel will dwell secure because I exist. Not because you're fighting, not because you're strength, not because the war horse, because I dwell, because I will plant you. Um, time and time again, God's people are attacked, but they are never exterminated. Ancient Rome, if you probably know, was the mightiest nation, the mightiest power. Do you know where they exist now? They're gone. You can't take a plane to land in Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you want to know why? Because God wiped it out. And yet he's upheld Israel because these are his covenant people, his people he will preserve, he will make sure they are not exterminated. Thirdly, the Lord five times in these verses, in verses 8, 9, 10, 11, five times you can look at him, states something like this, that he will either cut off their enemies, he will give them rest from their enemies, he will restrain violent men from disturbing them. What a deal. Hey, five times, I'm going to make it clear, no one's going to touch you unless I say they can touch you. Isn't that confidence? You want a king? You want King Saul? No one can touch you unless I say. This is the Lord's promise. He's going to secure them. He's going to make sure no one harms them. All of the enemies, he can, he can restrain. He, he can pull back a king's heart. You're not going to attack. And they'll do it. Isn't that what kings do? This is really a king. Yahweh, really. The Lord really is the king. And again, it's not because they earned it, but because he is the Lord. And lastly, look at verse 11. This is probably the main, the main, this is where the, the whole section just turns on ahead about the entire purpose of this, of this statement. In verse 11, the Lord will make you a house. Well, I thought David already had a house. What, what, what are you talking about here? Well, it's kind of a play on words. So David says, Lord, I want to build you this beautiful mansion just like I got. And the Lord says, if I want anything, I would tell you. I don't need anything. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. It doesn't really mean house. This is not speaking of a literal house, but a figurative house. A, he built a house for you. Maybe you could say a bloodline or a lineage or a dynasty, right? You want to build me a house? I'm going to make your house, your family name, your family tree. It's going to go. I'm going to make it grow. God guarantees then David's future. Now, again, you're worried about your bloodline being cut off because all your kids are about to go nuts. The next coming chapters, they just go rampant. And you're worried about your, your people getting cut off. I'll make sure you have more kids. I'll, I'll make sure your kids are all kings. I mean, I, I know that we have presidents, so kings are kind of like king, president, no similarity. Imagine you thinking, so I'm a pretty decent king. And they're always going to have a king like me? And you're going to ensure that? This is, this is grace. This is a blessing that David's going to get, and he's not done anything to earn it. David's bloodline will continue. Now, I want you to look to verses 12 and 16. Uh, before we get there, we're going to have to do a little bit of a, 
little bit of background. Uh, notice in verse 12, there are multi- this is stated multiple times. So if you look at verse 12 through 16, he speaks a lot of the word forever. Perhaps you notice in verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, your son's kingdom, forever. If you look again, it talks about the steadfast love never being removed. If you look at verse 16, it says, Your throne shall be established forever. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So the Lord's saying, David, your throne will never die. But David's going to die one day, right? This is something that we call, if you, if you don't know much about even just some Bible language or some familiar terms, this is called the Davidic covenant. So the covenant with David. Uh, you guys know the word covenant more than you think you do. So what is a covenant? A covenant is a promise between two or more people or parties with conditions that are to be upheld. Some covenants are unconditional. Some are conditional. Uh, think about this. You have in, in your Bible, you have two, um, you, you have a, a middle line. You have an Old Testament and a New Testament. You could literally call that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We get the word testament from a Greek word that means covenant in the Bible. So the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the New Testament, Old Testament. Oftentimes we think of a covenant as kind of like a contract. My, my boss signs it, I sign it. That can be helpful. But we need to be careful because you can break a contract just like that. End it. You're all fired. See ya. A covenant is a little bit different. It's actually much better. A covenant has the idea of a promise. You may not fulfill, but I will fulfill. See, a contract, if I cheat on my job, my boss can fire me, contract's broken. Right? Doesn't matter. I, I could lie, cheat, steal, whatever. But with a covenant, it's a promise. I will uphold my end. You uphold yours. And if you don't, I will uphold my end still. So think of like a marriage covenant. When you get married, till death do us part, that's the covenant, right? I will be faithful. I promise. You need to be promised to be faithful too. That's what a covenant is. The best idea is probably, our best picture is probably a marriage, okay? Contracts can be tossed aside. Covenants are promises that are committed to faithfulness. So here, verses 12 through 16, this is the covenant that God makes with David. This is foundational for a lot of the New Testament. Look at verses 12 through 16 again. This is the core of the covenant. God promises his word, his oath, his guarantee is to do in verse 12 to make sure that as David dies, he will have children. Verse 13 says that the throne will forever be there. In verses 15 and 16, God says, I will be to your offspring a father. They will be to me a son. They will forever have a throne. So a lot of forevers, a lot of guarantees. This is, this is a big thing to carry out, right? David's going to die. And the Lord says, after you die, don't worry about it. I got it. Ain't nothing going to happen. I promise. In all this covenantal promises, the Lord has sworn that he will do tremendous things. Look at verse 12. The Lord's going to raise up offspring after David's death, who will turn into a king. Who is the first king after David? Maybe you're familiar with the man Solomon. He didn't do so great as a king. He was a son of Bathsheba. After his birth, though, the Lord, the, the second Samuel chapter 12 says the Lord loved him. So again, God is automatically fulfilling his promise. God does not break covenant promises. He can't. He'd be a liar if he did. So the new covenant is a new promise. The Lord does not lie. He does not falter. He upholds the promise. So Solomon is born. He is the next king. But if you know much about Solomon's king, kingship, 
what happens almost immediately after? It, it seems like immediate. The nation just splits in two. What a great king we have. Civil war erupts, right? So, let's, so I thought this king was supposed to be good. We'll keep reading. Look at verse 13. Solomon, his son, will build for the Lord a temple. Perhaps you know of the temple that was built. If you read much of 1 Kings, if you read what Solomon did, I mean, this is amazing. It's like one of the eight wonders of the world, I think, is what it, it later came to be. I mean, this thing is massive. It's beautiful. If you look at, I think it's in Mark chapter 13, I want to say, when Jesus and the disciples are walking, and they say, look at this beautiful temple, Lord. Like, isn't it great? These stones are huge. I mean, it isn't like a little tiny church with a little steeple and it's real cute. This is massive. I mean, these stones are gigantic. They weigh tons. They're gigantic. And Solomon builds his temple. But maybe you know, just like that temple in Jesus' day that fell, the first temple that Solomon built, it's overthrown. It's demolished. Nebuchadnezzar just blows it up. It's gone. So these promises have to mean, they have to mean something more than just this, right? It's not going to fall. The temple's going to fall. So how does this promise come to fruition? The one that's coming is going to be like David. He's going to be like Solomon, but he's going to be better than David, better than Solomon. Look at verses 14 and 15. King Solomon have an intimate relationship with God, a father-son love. I have a son. There's a unique love I have for my son. It's just different. I mean, it's, he's my son. He, I'm, going to treat, I'm going to love him and treat him specifically and uniquely. So the Lord says about Solomon, I'm going to be to him a son. Look at verse uh, 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Now, a discipline, a form of hatred? Well, no, of course not. Now, getting spanked doesn't really feel good. I think you, most of you guys have parents that would say, go find me a good switch, son. And you, okay, I'll get you one, right? It doesn't mean they hate you. It means they love you, right? They want to spurn you. They want you to quit doing wickedness and run to, to obedience, run to goodness, right? That's the point. So the Lord is going to show a special, a covenantal, a steadfast love to Solomon. Though Solomon's going to go astray, and he will go astray repeatedly, the Lord will remain faithful to Solomon. He will not forsake him. Though Solomon will forsake him, the Lord will not. Isn't that unfair? I say it's unfair because look at verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Isn't that interesting? Did King Saul sin? Your darn tootney did. Did Solomon sin? Like crazy. But Solomon didn't get the love removed. What's the difference? Nothing on the man's part, right? They, they all sinned, right? There's not like a, this is the final sin, I had enough, right? They all sinned. I, Solomon did a lot of bad things too. So did David. But the Lord did not remove his love. This is why, I want to give you the answer. If the Lord has covenanted, if he has promised his steadfast love to someone, he will never cast them aside. The Lord is faithful. Saul King Saul did not get this promise. He didn't say, I will never depart from you. Saul didn't get that. But David and Solomon did. Is that fair? Do you think that's fair? That's the question. Maybe you know, and we'll, we'll answer that soon. Maybe you know that about a thousand years later, the Lord would send 
a king to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, who is from David, who will be the better David. That's Jesus Christ, the son of David, the root of Jesse, the better David. As the song says, he's David's son and David's Lord. I want to show you a couple of ways how Jesus is this king. And this is really, and this is what Christmas is about. This is the main theme. So first, Jesus dwelled with his people. Remember, what's David's first reason? I want to build you a house, Lord. I want to give you something really pretty, something real big. I want you to live in it. And what does God say? David, I don't need a house, okay? The Lord doesn't need to dwell anywhere. Again, he has no needs. But perhaps you know Isaiah chapter 7. It says that Jesus is called, you'll call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? Well, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Your questions you always ask are right with my sermon. Good, good question. John chapter 1, verse 14. I want you to hear this. And the word, who's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt, this is, I know maybe like Greek and Hebrew, you're kind of like, oh good, another Greek word. This one's really important. The word became flesh and dwelt. The Greek word literally means tabernacled. That's what it says. The Lord the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So the Lord doesn't need David to build him a house. He doesn't dwell anywhere. Yet the Lord tabernacled, he dwelled, he had a fleshly tent. The incomprehensible God stuffed himself into a human body. Like a hand fills a glove, he became a man. He lived amongst his people. Though he was in the form of God, he did not e count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think of the creator who's nothing like us descending down, I mean, stooping down. This is an infinitely, this is an infinite jump down to man and becoming like us, becoming a baby, guys. Like when you see these little manger scenes, that's God. It's not a cute, I mean, it's a cute baby, but it's God. He was upholding everything as a little infant. Just fathom the incarnation. Christmas, we just think, oh, a cute baby. That baby's God. And can you fathom how huge this is? Charles Spurgeon said, the omnipotent became an infant. The fullness of God who needs nothing, needs no one, had a human body, human nature. The stunning truth that while Mary was nursing her son, Jesus was upholding everything. Don't forget how beautiful the incarnation is. That's a miracle. It's just stunning. He's not just a little baby. He is the king. He is Christ the Lord. And thus Israel, if you remember, they wanted a king. Give us a real, we don't want God. Give us a real king. What does God give them? He gives them both. God became a man. You want a human king? I'll give you myself. God stoops down, becomes a man. Jesus Christ is the God man. He's the perfect king. He does not grow weary or sinful or change or fail like David. He does not sin like Solomon. He does not change like all these kings. He is faithful. He is true. He is the better David, the perfect king. Therefore, you can go to him. He was man. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he is God and man. That's good news. Number two, Jesus destroys the enemy. Look at verses 10 and 11. Notice I said, if you remember, about five times the Lord says that he will destroy their enemies. He will like, wipe them out. He will keep them away, that sort of language. Jesus came to conquer. He came to destroy sin, to defeat death. 
and to crush the head of the serpent who is Satan. By Jesus' dying, he defeated the devil. Now, Satan is still permitted to roam around the earth or run around, uh, but he's on a very tight leash, right? Uh, Martin Luther said that he is God's devil. I like that a lot. It's God's devil. He owns him. So just as David defeated, look at verse 1, he brought peace, or verse 1 says he brought rest to all his enemies, to all his people. So too, Jesus has come to bring peace and rest to his own people. Now think of what Israel could do. You could see this throne. You could see this house and say, the Lord dwells there, or I'm sorry, David dwells there. We got peace. We know our king. We're going to be okay, right? You can see this is a huge house. We, we know we're fine. They can literally look to him. Friends, we have a better king to look to. We have, a, we have the son of David, the better David, Jesus Christ. By faith, we can look to where he is seated. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He rules the world as we sing with truth and grace. He is mighty. He is sufficient. He is your God. Only Jesus Christ can bring true rest. If you're weary this morning or anxious or fearful, you have a king who conquers everything. You don't have to worry about anything. Jesus is the king over the world. He orders your days, your steps, and your troubles because he is a king. He is a king to conquer. He is a sword to conquer and a gentle hand for calming his people. If you're weak in faith, what should you do? You should look to your king. He's a good king. Are you suffering in sin? Look to his nail-scarred hands and his love that flows from them for you. Are you tempted in sin? Jesus is strong and mighty. He is faithful. So run from your sin and run to the rock that is higher than I. That's, that's what you're called to do. You can trust the word. Now rest, I think, we don't like to rest. I like to rest. I like to work. I, I got things I got to do. I want to knock it out. But you can rest in life not be, I think we think rest is a sign of weakness, like, okay, just rest, like, you need to take a break. It is on our part because we know who has all sufficient power. You can rest because Jesus has everything in his hand. You can truly rest. Lastly, Jesus deals with our iniquity. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says that he will discipline him. He will be to a father and a son. Though he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. This is obviously about Solomon. He will, he will stray, he will discipline when he strays, Solomon stray, the Lord raised up enemies and said, you want to you disobey Solomon? Here's some enemies to deal with. Good luck. He disciplined him. Solomon sinned, but, his, but the Lord would continue covenanting with Solomon. Remember, Saul sinned, he didn't break, or he rejected Saul. Solomon sinned, the Lord did not cast him aside. Why is that? What's the difference? The Bible says this, that there is none good, no, not one. We have all sinned and all fallen short. Solomon and Saul have done the same. Even the good we have done, the Bible says, are filthy rags. Even our obedience, our church attendance, giving, all these things that we do that are commendable things, they're filthy rags before the Lord. Why is that? Because he is a perfect standard, a righteous standard. It's, it's, it's he himself. There's nothing that drew him to us. Guys, we should be treated just like Saul. I am Saul. I've not been faithful to the Lord. I have sinned. He has every right to cast me aside. It would be just. Instead, 
when we sin, we are disciplined. The steadfast love of God that will not depart from Solomon, we get. Do you know why that is? Look at verse 14. Jesus is the perfect son to the Father. But Jesus never committed any iniquity. Jesus never sinned. There's no corruption. There's no falling short. He never messed up or had a boo-boo or whoops, my bad. He never did any of that. Jesus suffered, if you look at verse 14, the rod of men, the stripes of the sons of men. Why did Jesus get stricken? Why was he scorned? Why was he whipped and disciplined? Because of our sins. Isaiah 33 says he was crushed for our iniquities. Our sins were put upon Christ. Jesus was scorned for them so that the love of God would never depart from us. By faith alone, if we turn from our sins, repent and run to the king and pay homage to him and surrender, he will save a multitude of sinners because of his love for us, not because of anything we've done. Jesus is a good king. He was born to die. And this king rules all things. He rules through his church, through his word, by his spirit. If you're a part of a local church, that's why we want to be here. This is how he rules through his people, through his church, through his word. And we give homage, we pay thanks to him. He's a good king who pardoned his guilty criminals. And now we are his sons. The son of David's throne endures forever because Christ is the better king. Let's pray.